Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Galatians chapter 5. We are currently in the sermon series going through the book of Galatians, and we have reached the conclusion of the book. The last two chapters, chapter 5 and 6, which we will finish over the next few weeks in time for Advent to begin on December 2nd, Sunday, December 2nd. Advent is the season of the church's life where we prepare for His coming. Uh, We look back and prepare for the celebration of His First coming, the birth of Christ, the arrival of God into our world in this baby, as well as anticipate and look forward to the arrival of God again uh, as Christ returns sometime in the future. And so Advent is the season that names our training ground in waiting and in patience and hope and expectation. And we will be there very soon. But first, um, Galatians. We've reached the end of the book of Galatians, and so now we are getting to some of his uh, more moving conclusions. Um, This morning, Paul will have lots to tell us about um, freedom and love and service. And so let's read together, picking it up in Galatians chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, as we've read Galatians, we've seen circumcision has been a big issue. There are some Jewish teachers in Galatia trying to get Paul's church to accept circumcision. And he's been arguing that they don't need to do that. It's faith alone in Christ, which will keep them a part of God's family. Uh, And you see him now saying that if they were to accept circumcision, um, they would be severed from Christ. There is some wordplay going on here. Okay, the Jewish teachers are concerned with severing certain things off of the body. And Paul says, if that is of ultimate importance to you, if that replaces the importance of Christ and Christ alone, then you will find yourself entirely severed off from Christ. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Righteousness is one of those words that uh, becomes spiritual to us and is hard to define. We think of it in terms of like moral perfection. Um, It can just as easily be translated and probably should in most cases, justice. Dikaiosune is the Greek word. Paul is talking about the hope we have of justice for the kingdom of God, for things to be arranged on earth as they are in heaven. We live currently in an unjust world. And we feel that weight every day. But as Christians, we eagerly hope through the Spirit and by faith, for justice. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Here's his ultimate conclusion about circumcision. He's gradually been leading up to the entire book. He says, look, it counts for nothing. Not getting circumcised counts for nothing. 
None of it is important. The only thing that's important, the only thing that has real power or real meaning, the only ultimate thing there is, is faith. And not just faith in the abstract by itself, but faith that works itself out through love. Faith that finds its maturity in the relationships between believers, between person and person. You were running well, verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Again, you see the strong language of Paul. This is less a play on words and more of a direct statement. Paul says, look, you who have been troubling and annoying the people that I have brought to faith in Galatia, trying to get them to accept the yoke of the Mosaic law and become circumcised, I wish you, if you're so concerned with snipping and snapping, would just snip it entirely off. I wish you'd castrate yourselves. Now, I've said some things perhaps I shouldn't have said from the pulpit, but I don't think I've ever gotten this far. In fact, I think this gives me permission to push the envelope to see how, how, how much more intense I can get, and I can be like, well, it's still not as bad as the Bible here. Still never told anyone to do this. Verse 13, it comes back to the theme of freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but again, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This last verse in this passage, verse 15, I think is a word for our time. Uh, when you have people raising the rhetoric demonizing and dehumanizing others for all kinds of differences in lifestyle and belief and political affiliation. Um, You and I need to be reminded and need to learn those who live by the sword die by the sword. And those who bite and devour each other need to be careful because you're going to be consumed by other people as well. This is a truth that the church needs to learn how to model to the larger world. We see this happening in the larger world. The unfortunate reality is that often churches are the people who need to hear this the most. Many of you probably have heard stories like this or experienced this in churches growing up or churches in the past um, where little things start to become big things and gossip and rumors start to grow and grow and grow and people choose sides and people take issues over smaller things that don't really matter and a thousand cuts lead to big problems. You bite and devour one another. Paul says, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. There are two big themes here in this passage. First is the freedom that Christ has purchased for you and I as believers. The second is the obligation that that freedom brings. What we should use that freedom for. Working through love. Freedom to serve others, to fulfill the law when it is summed up in Leviticus, um, as quoted here, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As I was reading through this passage, there were a handful of verses that really stood out to me that 
that made me want to underline them and memorize them. The first was verse 1 here. For freedom Christ has set us free. This sounds a little bit redundant of a sentence. Instead of just saying, look, Christ has set us free, stand firm. He, he wants to remind us it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Um, the work that God has done in Christ that's created the freedom that believers experience was done so that we wouldn't be slaves. You and I as, as believers, as human beings, just need to hear this repeatedly over and over and over again. Stand firm. Don't so easily slip back into slavery, to whatever it might be. It was for freedom that we've been set free. He continues on in, in verse four and, or verse 5 and 6, Through the Spirit by faith we eagerly wait the hope of justice, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in verse 13, you were called to freedom again. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This word opportunity um, is a word that would have described like a military base of operations. The opportunity here would be like a foothold for the enemy. Don't let your freedom that you have in Christ become a place where sin and death, where bitterness, where the law, where the flesh uses to enslave you again. Freedom has this sense of uh, potential within it. Freedom is a very slippery thing. Um, Freedom is one of those words that we assume means the same thing, but when you really get down to it, it's hard to define, and people have different definitions for it. Like the way that the United States of America, the government defines freedom— is actually different than the way freedom is defined and used in the scriptures. There are different ways of thinking about freedom. There are different ends to freedom. There are different reasons for people to seek freedom. There are different experiences of what freedom is. And the reason why Paul says, stand firm in this freedom, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, is because freedom has this slippery ability to be co-opted by slave owners. Freedom has this ability to um, trick you back into slavery. Um, I read a a story in the Washington Post. It was published a few weeks ago. Uh, The title was, Man Wins Powerball Lottery for $314 million, period. It ruined his life, period. And we've probably all heard stories like this of someone winning the lottery and then they go broke or end up being arrested for robbing a bank or all kinds of different things happen to them. Um, But I do know this, if you were to ask many people, what's one of the types of freedom you most desire, including myself, I'd say financial freedom. Freedom from debts. Freedom from the stress and worry of finances. Freedom from bills freedom from the inability to enjoy things that I want to enjoy. In fact, I could spin it positive. I'm a pastor. I can twist this. Freedom to help other people. Freedom to donate. Freedom to build beautiful things that will enrich the lives of those less fortunate than others. But you you see these stories of lottery winners. In particular, this man, Jack Whitaker, he won this $314 million. It was the largest jackpot ever in 2002. Um, and within a short span of a few years, his great-granddaughter was dead because of it. 
Uh, and he had spiraled into a life of sin and sickness, had lost his family, had lost all of his friends. And ultimately, his conclusion was the best thing he ever could have done upon receiving that jackpot ticket was to rip it up. That nothing had so ruined his life, so enslaved his life, than what looked like and felt like and perhaps could have been freedom. You see, that freedom became an opportunity. It became a base of operations. The ability to do all these different things with money became a, a, a place where all kinds of things took over his life and brought destruction to himself and to his family. He was actually, ironically, a millionaire before he won the Powerball lottery. Uh, he owned a successful business, although he lived a very you know, small life. He was not flashy by any means. He apparently had about $1.7 million to his name in terms of net worth. Um, what a great start to a Powerball winner, right? Um, as he got this money, he tied the large portion of it. And he was actually held as an example of someone with good character winning the lottery who was going to do good things because of it. Who looked like and talked like and acted like he didn't need this money and he didn't want it to change him or his life. And instead, he wanted to better his city, one of the poorest cities in the, the nation. Wanted to help out his local churches and government, fill some potholes. We often hear these stories, at least I do, of, of lottery winners who go broke very quickly. Not a lot of good things usually happen to people who get these kind of windfalls. And we look down our noses at these people. We think, well, yeah, I mean, if you make choices like that, that's what's going to happen. If you have poor financial habits before you win the lottery, those same poor financial habits are just going to be amplified once you have a lot of money in which to, to use it for. What we do, though, and we do this in a lot of areas, particularly in money, is we underestimate the power it has. We imagine that we are so strong and so self-determined that temptation is not as strong for us as for others. In fact, the Bible will go out of its way over and over and over, and Jesus himself will paint money as one of, if not the most principal power opposed to God. Jesus will repeatedly say it's hard, if not impossible, for a rich person to inherit the kingdom. And we think like, oh, that's really strong hyperbolic language by Jesus. Thankfully, we're rich and we can still inherit the kingdom. His, his point, though, right, when he says you can't worship God or money, these are two kind of separate gods. They claim the same allegiances. They claim obedience. His point is that money's more powerful than we imagine it. It's not a neutral thing, and we're not neutral people. Money puts you in situations where your desires start to change, where your opportunities are different, where what's possible to you is different. Your relationships change. Your imagination changes. So this man, Jack Whittaker, he won all this money. He did donate a big portion of it. Um, But very quickly, he discovered that it had soured most of his friendships. And people now saw him as just a walking opportunity for money. And that turned him bitter and hard. And with this money and his newfound loneliness and depression, he found the ability to go and do unsavory things by himself, which led to losing lots of money, led to losing his family. His relationship with his wife was broken. He thought, surely if I can do anything right, it's, 
it's blessed some of the people in my life who've not had any money. And so there was a, a waitress at a diner he used to go to every morning where he'd buy like $3.50 worth of coffee and toast. And it's a very, very poor city they lived in. And he gave this woman a large sum of money, wanted to help her out. She was there every morning working just to get by. And in turn, he ruined her life. Her friendship soured. Her family turned on her. She was robbed multiple times, had to move over and over and over again. His granddaughter, who had lived a life of poverty, decided to bless with money. And in turn, she fell into the wrong crowd. People who um, saw her money as an opportunity. She became addicted to drugs. He would have to attend her funeral not too long afterwards. What looks like freedom, and perhaps could be freedom, right, becomes an opportunity for someone to fall back into slavery. You see, freedom is incredibly dangerous if it's not tethered to a higher moral compass, if it's not tethered to a higher end, if it doesn't have a purpose to it. Freedom for freedom's sake is a, a dangerous thing. And in the scriptures, that's not why we've been freed. That's not the type of freedom that we've been given. Often the automobile is held up as one of the prime examples of the promises of freedom and the dangers of freedom. I don't know if you're aware of this. The Unabomber, um, these, these um, bombs in the mail, um, had this manifesto, and he utilized the automobile as one of these um, um, teaching points for this. Um, but it's been recognized by philosophers and, and different um, uh, people, uh, authors throughout history. Um, the automobile obviously brought with it lots of new possibilities. Imagine the types of freedom that's available to us now because we have cars. At the same time, though, it limits possibilities and enslaves. So now it's really hard for people who aren't rich enough to purchase cars and maintain them by gas to have the same opportunities as other people. It limits or increases lots of possibilities for many, but then limits opportunities for the less fortunate in a way that wasn't in, intended, right? No one designed it to do this, which is unintended consequences. Um, as well, the automobile limits um, our possibilities. Whereas before it was a freedom and a privilege, now it's difficult for me to live life without a car. I'm kind of enslaved to a culture where you have to have a car to succeed. Technology often does this, right? We build smartphones, and they're awesome, but now we can't live without smartphones. What once was freeing becomes an opportunity to enslave, to change, um, not always in, in positive ways. Cars as well are one of the leading causes of um, environmental damage, uh, to the world and the production of oil and gas has produced no end of wars and conflicts, and debates and awkward Thanksgiving dinners. What looks like freedom and can be freedom without a higher purpose often devolves back into slavery. Um, freedom in the biblical sense, the freedom that Christ has purchased for us, is a freedom that comes with a four. It's a freedom that comes with a purpose, with a goal, with an end. It's a freedom that's characterized by something. In particular, here in Galatians and elsewhere in Scripture, we're freed so that we might love. We're freed so that we might serve 
other people. Uh, there was a philosopher um, who built some of the foundations of how we see freedom politically in Western democracies. Um, John Stuart Mill, he, he says this, The only freedom which deserves the name freedom is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to attain it. Um, a scholar, a biblical scholar and theologian, Richard Bauckham, after surveying the biblical landscape of freedom uh, and the New Testament's teachings on freedom, says this, Perhaps a biblical understanding of freedom after the same pattern of that definition would be the only freedom that deserves the name of freedom in Christianity is pursuing the good of others, freely pursuing the good of others, not by depriving them of liberty, but by promoting their liberty. You and I have not been freed simply so that we might do whatever it is that we want to do. This is often how we think of freedom. It's having absolute control of our lives, unimpeded decision-making, independence, autonomy, personal sovereignty. And it devolves very quickly into narcissism, egocentrism, um, without limitations, without rules uh, outside of ourselves. Um, freedom becomes a, an opportunity, a base for evil to operate. In fact, just thinking of these terms, independence, autonomy, and personal sovereignty. Um, from a Christian viewpoint, these all smack and smell of profound sinfulness. As Christians, we're not independent people. We're dependent on God much more than we're aware of. We're dependent on others much more than we're aware of. We're for sure not autonomous. In many ways, the definition of sin is autonomy. The original human beings, Adam and Eve, had a law, a, a namas from God, not to eat from that tree. And instead, they said, we'll be a law unto ourselves. We'll be autonomous. We'll choose what's right and what's wrong. And it's created no end of evil and injustice in the world. As Christians, we're not sovereign in both ways that are frustrating and ways that are disappointing. We have to recognize that God alone is sovereign, that he alone moves the ultimate wheels of, of history. The freedom that we have in the Bible is a very specific freedom from something. It's not freedom from um, limitations. It's freedom from the things that used to enslave us. And by knowing what used to enslave us, it helps us avoid letting freedom itself become an opportunity for slavery. So you and I have been freed, according to the Scriptures, from sin. Sin and its addictive effects. Sin and its self-destructive results. We've been freed from having to only look after our own interests, from having to pursue our good above the good of God and others. And so we can know that if we start using that freedom for sinful things to justify our sinful actions, we're falling right back into slavery. We've been freed from very specific things. We've been freed for very specific things. We've been freed for service, for looking after the good of others. Through love, Paul says, serve one another. The whole law, he says, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a quote from Leviticus. Jesus seizes on this quote when he answers the question of what is the greatest command. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On this, the whole law hangs. Paul repeatedly will say the whole law is summed up, and he quotes Leviticus here, by loving your neighbor as yourself. And St. Augustine, an early church father, once asked himself, why does Paul say this repeatedly without any reference to loving God like Jesus had? And the answer that he came to, the conclusion that he arrived at, was that Paul says this, um, because it's easy for human beings to lie about their love of God, both to other people and to themselves. It's easy to, easy to deceive people um, about the love that you have for God. But a clear test for Augustine of whether or not your love for God is genuine is seen in and only in whether or not a person loves others. And he quotes First John chapter 4 which says, how can the love of God be in someone's heart if they do not love their brother in need? Freedom is a complex thing. Freedom is something that can be increased or decreased based on your decisions, based on the decisions of others, and based on your own decisions. Um, Music is a good analogy to this. Um, You're not free to play a beautiful piece on the violin unless you are taught how to play it, unless you learn how to play it, unless you undergo discipline and practice, repetition. I couldn't just pick one up and do it. I've not done those things. But through repeated actions, through being taught and and learning how to, my freedom has increased, the freedom to enjoy the violin, the freedom to produce beautiful things. In the same way, we can take certain actions or learn or be taught certain things that decrease our freedoms. This is really kind of at the heart of addiction. You make one choice, and it leads to another choice, and it leads to another choice, and before you know it, your choices are actually limited. We all probably know, I'm not going to mention a name, but some person who's lied so much for their entire life that many people wonder if they can do anything but lie anymore where we wonder whether they even are capable of knowing what the truth is. Because you lie and you make reality about yourself and about how you'd like to see it. And all of a sudden, it becomes much harder for you to tell the truth. It becomes much harder for you to accept things that you otherwise wouldn't want to accept. Christian freedom is freedom from certain things, and it's freedom for certain things. It's freedom for becoming more like Christ, experiencing the life um, Christ has come to give us. It's being incorporated into the life of God. It's being um, receiving the peace and the joy in the life of God mediated to us through Christ and through the Spirit, found in the community of believers. This is why Paul probably concludes in chapter 3 that in Christ there are no Jews or Greeks. There's neither slave or free. There's no male and female. It's because we've been freed up to neglect these barriers. Think about forgiveness. Think about how hard it is to forgive people. Someone who's not been trained in the ways of the Spirit. Someone who's not learned from Christ. Someone who's not practiced forgiveness. Moral disciplines like forgiveness. Find it hard to be freed to forgive. And instead are enslaved to bitterness and grudges, and broken relationships. 
No, forgiveness like a violin is something that has to take work. This is the type of freedom being imagined by Paul here in chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has freed you. God in Christ through the Spirit is after your freedom. But it's not just freedom to do whatever you might want to do, which would really just be a slavery of itself. It's the freedom to love your neighbor, even your enemy. It's the freedom to forgive. It's the freedom to serve others. This phrase Paul uses, the only thing that matters, he says, is faith working through love. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions I I have seen and have read, I know of, when it comes to the the Christian religion. Um, Echoing on Augustine, talking about why um, the law is summed up in, in one's love for their neighbor, their ability to witness to that, to bear evidence to that. The scriptures will also say things like faith without works is dead. Faith, if it's real, if it has power, is a faith that works itself out through love. Unfortunately, for too many of us, because it's so easy and comfortable, faith is often something that we that turns into like a spiritual navel-gazing, um, where we spiritualize it, and we keep it to ourselves. It becomes just about certain things we believe. And if anything, faith becomes one of these things used for slavery. So we use our faith to separate Jews and Gentiles. We use our faith to separate slaves and freed people. We use our faith to separate male and woman. Faith for Paul means nothing if it's not working through love. What a message for the church. What a timely lesson for us to learn to be implanted deep into our hearts. That for you and I to be faithful Christians means for us to work in love. The love of others, of our neighbors, of our enemies. And these words aren't without definition. They're not without example. Love itself, like freedom, is another one of these words that can be co-opted. Who gets to define what love is? People will disagree on this. That's a hateful action. Others will say, no, I was loving that person by doing that. Well, luckily the scriptures give us a pretty concrete definition of love. Love is Christ. Love is seen in the work of Christ, in his life, the way he lived, the way he related to other people. And again, First John, we're told that love was manifest, it was revealed in the cross, laying down one's life for the redemption, for the good of somebody else. What it would mean for Christians to be so focused on the one thing that matters, faith working through love, would mean for us to adopt the pattern and lifestyle of Christ. To have the faith of Christ. To be faithful like Christ was faithful. To love like Christ has loved. For Paul, for the scriptures, anything else is pointless, worthless. It has no power. It has no ultimacy to it. Christian faith is a faith that expresses itself when we wash the feet of others. Christian faith is a faith that expresses itself when we're friends with tax collectors, 
and sinners and gluttons and drunkards and prostitutes. Christian faith, if anything, is a faith that expresses itself when we identify with and serve those who Christ identifies with and serves. In Matthew 25, Christ so um, forms solidarity with those who are marginalized that he says, whatever you do for them, you do for me, and whatever you don't do for them, you don't do for me. In this very moving passage, he says, what will matter most for your life, what will be most ultimate, the one thing that counts, is not some intellectual faith that you may or may not have. It's how you treated the prisoner. It's how you treated the stranger. Did you welcome them? Or did you demonize them? Did you, did you create fear over them? Did you push them out? It's whether you gave clothing to the person who was naked. It's whether you gave food to the person who was hungry. This can be, if we let it, become a, a paradigm shift in how we view our responsibility as Christians and how we view our posture in the world and towards other people. The type of faith that Christ is after, the type of faith that you and I are pushed towards, the type of faith that works itself out through love. It's a freedom that avoids being used as an opportunity for the flesh. We'll, we'll, we'll see this in the next passage in Galatians. Paul will work out two warring forces in our world, the flesh and the spirit. And he'll give us very clear characteristics of the flesh, very clear characteristics of the spirit. And it will be easy for all to identify what side is which and how you can determine whether your life is on one side of this war or on the other side of this war. But he says the, the freedom that Christ gives us doesn't become an opportunity for the flesh, but instead, through love, it allows us to serve one another. The freedom Christ gives us, the type of freedom where we're freed from biting and devouring each other. We're freed into a community with ourselves and with those outside of the Christian community. Serve and to love, to bless and to do good. Paul, this morning, wants you and I to envision the type of freedom created for us. To be clear on and specific about the things we've been freed from, the things which have enslaved us, the things which do and will destroy us and our communities and our relationships, our life and our peace and our joy. And he wants us to press into a freedom for love, a freedom for service, a freedom where we slowly but surely increase our ability to walk in righteousness. It's easy for us, including myself, to imagine that God is um, not for our good. That God desires to decrease my freedom. That God desires to increase my expression of self. Because when I think of freedom as autonomous self-control, there's lots of things I want to do and be that ultimately are bad for myself and for others. Instead, we're, we're called to um, convert our imaginations in such a way where we discover that true freedom means finding true human flourishing in the Spirit, walking in righteousness, being formed after Christ. 
For you and I, as Christians, who come to the table every week, and we'll do so again very shortly, we come to recognize Christ not only as the exact representation of God, but also as the true and perfect and beautiful human being, as the goal of humanity. Christ dying on the cross was not him having his freedom limited, freedom to protect himself, freedom to defend himself, freedom to pursue other avenues of life. It was Christ being able to experience the freedom to love and to serve, to forgive, to redeem. When we are shaped into the image of Christ, when we become more like him in how we live and love and relate, how we use our power and resources, This is not God limiting us, reducing us. This is God inviting us into life beyond what we could imagine. Ernst Kaseman said, Faith must be confessed on earth, and it's for this reason that love is its sign. And that means faith can never be flight from the world. There can never be uh, egocentric narcissism. Cyprian of Carthage commenting on this verse about biting and devouring, says, What business in the Christian's heart has the wilderness of wolves and the savagery of dogs and the deadly poison of snakes and the bloody cruelty of wild beasts? It's not there. It shouldn't be there. It ought not be there. But if we're not careful, the freedom that we claim becomes just another way for us to live in our own self-interest becomes just another way for us to continue down the path of destruction, devouring ourselves and one another. But God, through the work of Christ, has purchased freedom for us, that we might flourish, that we might live, that we might walk in this newness of life as we eagerly await the hope of God's justice 